Good morning. Have you been blessed this morning? It has been amazing, honestly. I, I love it when God is speaking in our midst. And this morning, he's been speaking. I can actually go home and say, well, do you know what? My preach has been done. Because everything that's been said this morning, honestly, is about what we're about to hear. You know, but remember those words. God loves you, irrespective of who you are. And he loves you. Is that an echo? Yeah. And he loves you dearly. And he's inviting you this morning to commit your heart. We've heard all of this this morning already. Commit your heart. Get in. And you'll be richly blessed. So, <clears throat> we are going to continue on our preaching series on Matthew 18, The King We Need. And we'll be looking at our relationships in the kingdom. And our text is the whole of Matthew chapter 18, 1 to 35. You see, it's a massive chapter, so we're going to be reading it in chunks. Well, I thought to, to tell you a story. You see, quite a while ago, I'm not sure if a lot of you actually would know this, I used to be a sprinter when I was much younger. <laughs> and I actually represented my secondary school running all over Nigeria. You know? But the way I got into running for the school was quite interesting. You see, so I'll tell you the story. So it started off as this rivalry between myself and a friend of mine, Etienne. And we both believed that we were faster than, than the other. So we kept at it, trying to prove who was faster than the other one. So this lovely day, we decided, actually, let's go for it. Let's actually find out who is actually faster than the other. So we started running against one another. And it turns out that each time we run, one would beat the other at the race. So we kept at it. So we'll run, I'll beat him, and then we'll run, and he'll beat me. And then we'll run, and then naturally, the stage was set, and the crowd gathered. And people were watching and saying, okay, we want to see this. And then came along this year 12 student that was actually in the school-related team. And he thought, this is an opportunity for a cheap glory. I'm going to get in there, because obviously the stage was there, everybody were looking. You know, oh, I forgot to say, at this stage, we were, myself and Etienne were in year nine. So he was in year 12, and he was already in the school team. So he came along, and he said, come on, guys. I want you guys to stay 10 meters ahead of me, and then let's run this race, hoping, obviously, to, be, to meet us and beat us at the race. And so we started, and we ran. And guess what? He didn't catch us. <laughs> and he obviously... He felt embarrassed. And he thought, come on, let's go and have a rematch. But this time around, let's all start at the same place. Because obviously, he wanted to just show that he was faster. So we all started again, the 100 meters, at the same stage, and we ran. Guess what again? <laughs> we beat him. <laughs> and the story you know, spread like wildfire, like naturally is. He went around the school, and most importantly, he went even to the sport teacher. And the sport teacher, obviously, invited us in for a trial into the school related team. And, yeah, that's how we got in from year nine. So, 
Our passage for today, Matthew 18, Jesus paints a vivid picture of the values of the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom that operates in stark contrast to the world's standard, as Joe clearly stated last week and even this morning, an upside-down kingdom. So this morning, we will, be, we will explore the nature of this kingdom, where greatness is found in humility, mercy triumphs over judgment, and every individual, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is of immense value, and we will also glean valuable insights about relationships in the kingdom. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open to Matthew 18, or if you have your Bible apps as well, but... If you don't have any of that, the scripture is right at the, at the, on the screen right behind me, which you can actually read along. So like I said, we'll be reading this in chunks. So from verse 1 to 5, it says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you would never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whosoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever becomes one such child in my name, whoever welcomes one of such child in my name, welcomes me. Shall we pray? Father Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that indeed you come and open this word to us this morning. And you open the heart, even as it's been said this morning, for us to receive that which you're saying this morning, that everyone here will not leave the same way they came in, that you will meet each and every one of us, that very thing that we're actually looking up to you for, Lord. You will speak into those things this morning for us, oh Lord, even as the Holy Spirit dwells among us this morning, in Jesus' name. So the disciples approached Jesus with a question that resonates with many of us today. And the question is, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Like my friend and I, trying to prove who was faster than the other, and the year 12, my year 12 friend as well, who was also trying to show off that he was faster than the two year nine student. But unfortunately, he had, he had to eat the humble pie. In response to this question, Jesus did something very profound. He called a little child to him and declared, Truly I tell you, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you, you are like one of these children. It's important to note here that Jesus' immediate response wasn't even addressing the great, greatest in the kingdom, but actually the entrance into the kingdom. So what does it mean to, be, to become like a, like a child or to become like children? It is an invitation to embrace humility, innocence, and unwavering trust in God. Because in this kingdom, the currencies of this kingdom are those, and these are what we need to transact and operate in this kingdom. 1 Peter 5, 5b to 6, says it, says, says it this way, For God resists the proud and give grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Romans 16, 19b. But I want you to be wise about what is good and be innocent about 
what is evil. An American worship leader in the 90s you know, made an effort of what seemed like a rap about this song. I don't know if you know it. Um, Bob Fitz, his name is Bob Fitz. The, song, the rap goes like this. Be innocent of what is good. Be, no, be excellent of what is good. Be innocent of evil. Be excellent at what is good. Be innocent of evil. And the God of peace will make the Satan underneath your feet. And the God of peace will put the Satan underneath. You see, it is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. It is amazing what songs do. They remind us of words, the Bible words. Ever since I heard that, it stuck with me. And I can still recite it till today. You see, so that's why important is all the wonderful songs that we've been declaring this morning, that's, it helps us to remember the Word of God. And that is why I thought I should, I should share that with you guys. So, you see, worship songs, yeah, I said that. So to become like little children, perhaps we could take a cue from, a cue from the examples that our children show us in the face of this soaring cost of living and the increasing rise in energy prices. They are unperturbed unflinching, but instead have an unwavering trust in their parents to provide for their needs. If the whole world was to be crashing down all around, little children have these inherent traits of innocence and trust. In our relationship with our Heavenly Father, God expects us and requires us to trust Him completely like children would their earthly parents. Not trusting in our own abilities, but in the God of the abilities. And that is what it means to be like little children. Trust completely in God. He's the one that's given us the abilities. He's the one that's given us all that we have. And we've got to put our trust completely in him. Not in any, any person. Because sometimes we do this as human beings. We're asking God for something, but we're looking at, oh, I think, I think it's going to come from, from this way. It's going to come from that person. But the way God comes, it comes in, the, in whichever way he wants to. And when he comes, he does, he does it well. So he's asking us not to put our trust in anybody or in anything, but totally on him. So when we're asking God, yeah, he's going to use somebody. In this face of the earth, God used people. But you don't know who that person is going to be. It might not be who you're thinking or, who you, who you, or who, where you're thinking is going to come from. It's like Jesus Christ coming in, onto the earth. The Pharisees didn't expect him to come the way he came. And that's why most of them missed it. They were expecting him to come in a different way, come, come as a rich person among the ruling class, but he wasn't. So that is an example of putting complete trust in God, knowing that whichever way he's going to do it, he would do it. Hebrew 11.6a says, And without faith, it is impossible... To please God. I think I went too fast. Yeah, it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. So also in our relationship with one another, within the, the kingdom, humility should be the cornerstone. Jesus emphasized that whoever takes the lowly position of a child is the greatest in the kingdom. In a world that often exhausts power and prestige, Jesus redirects our focus to the virtue of humility, emphasizing that the way to true greatness and significance is to serve and love genuinely like he did. 
So reading on from our passage, verse 6 to 9, it says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it will be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come. But woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into fire of hell. So here, Jesus warns against us causing harm to those who believe in him. And what are those who believe in him? That's you and I. Everyone here who has put their trust in him and given their lives to him. And especially the vulnerable and the innocent. So God is warning against causing them to, to stumble. He vividly describes the severity of, of causing one of these little ones to stumble urging us to prioritize the well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our responsibility is not only to avoid leading others astray, but to actively welcome and protect them in the name of Jesus. And he went on further to emphasize the significance of not allowing anything to hinder our salvation, no matter what value we place on that thing. You know, one of our youth said that this morning. Irrespective, rich, poor, he said, no matter what it is, God is saying we shouldn't put, allow any of those things to, you know, to, to, stop, to, to stop our salvation. Because simply put, our salvation in Christ is invaluable. There's nothing as valuable as that. Absolutely nothing in the whole universe. Verse 7 says, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. He says, such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Jesus reassures us here not to be alarmed when we start to see things that causes people to stumble because it is written that such things will come. I mean, all you have to do is look around you. You read it in the news and everywhere you see people stumbling and all of those things. But the emphasis here that Christ is making is we should not we should not be the one that caused the stumbling. We should make sure the stumbling does not come through us. So we should do all we can within our power not to cause our brothers and sisters to stumble. So we should examine ourselves this morning. Let's reevaluate our work with Christ, our relationship with others. Are there things in our lives, the things we do, the things we watch, or how we carry ourselves? Could any of these make others to stumble. You know, the world talks about being myself and I, just myself alone, but the kingdom of God talks about us. So we're not just living for ourselves alone. We're looking after for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, Paul puts, puts it this way. He said all things in Christ. He said we've been set free. He said all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. I'm free to do all things, but I'll make sure 
I pick the things I do. If what I do will make my brother to stumble, then I won't do that. And that's what he's saying here. Because, well, I can do it, but hey, think about others. Well, what I do, will it affect them? Would it stop them from believing? Then I want to make sure I'm doing that as well. But again, it's not by power, it's not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So we cannot achieve any of these in our own strengths, except by the grace of God. Galatians 5, 24 to 26 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passion and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So we're going to be praying at the end. We're going to be praying into that at the end for God to release the grace to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. So we're doing that at the end of the prayer. Because we can't do it in our own strength now. So we need more of him. We need the Holy Spirit to help us to be able to do all these things we're talking about. So reading on from our chapter, verse 10 to 14. It says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that there are angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the, on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. I put that verse 11 in that orange color because some manuscripts do not have it. And just make reference to it, so just so you know. So the parable of the wandering sheep reinforces the theme of seeking and restoring those who have strayed. As citizens of this great kingdom of ours, not only are we not to cause others to stumble, but we should act- actively engage in restoring people back to God. Our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. God's heart rejoices more over the one who returns than many who never left. As members of the kingdom, we are called to emulate our Heavenly Father's relentless love and pursuit of those who have wandered away. Verse 11, that verse 11 categorically stipulates the sole reason why Christ, Jesus Christ, came into this world. To save that which was lost. And at his departure... He passed the same mantle to us, his disciples. If you guys remember well, in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of age. So in this kingdom, every individual is precious. And the joy over finding the lost outweighs the security of those who never wandered, thereby laying the emphasis and priority given to the relentless love, pursuit, and redemption of every individual. It is the heart of the Father to save and retain every soul. Jesus wasn't just given for just a few. He was given for the entire world, for as many that receives him, the Bible says. So, 
we should emulate our, our Father in heaven and go in pursuit of others as well. Apart from we shouldn't cause, cause others to stumble, but we are called as well to pursue those who are lost. So reading on from verse 15 of our passage to 20, it says, If your brothers or sisters sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell the church, tell, I mean, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am in their midst. In dealing with sin within the church, Jesus provides a framework for reconciliation. The emphasis on, is on private resolution first, followed by the involvement of a few witnesses, if needed, and ultimately, the intervention of the church community. The goal here is restoration and reconciliation, mirroring the boundless forgiveness God extends to us. Jesus teaches us to love our neighbors as ourselves, Mark 12, 31. And one definition of love from the Bible says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. In another place, it says, love covers a multitude of sin. But love does not condone sin. So Jesus is asking us, in our relationship with one another, to call out sin in love. The emphasis here is in love. Because firstly, we are asked to address it privately because the intention is not to shame or dishonor. But if your brother or sister would not listen and change their ways, we are encouraged not to be offended. But rather, make another attempt, but this time around with one or two brothers and sisters that they might, you believe that they might listen to. And if still they still won't listen or budge, then you should bring it to the attention of the elders of the church. Like, go to Tony, Joe, Simo, Johnny, and say, whoa, there's something here that you've got to be aware of. Um, I've, I've tried to resolve it privately, but they won't listen. But, well, I leave it in your hands. And I believe God will give the elders wisdom on how to deal with it. No one is perfect. But we can all strive by the grace of God and according to the principles that God has given us to maintain a healthy relationship in the church. Jesus also emphasized in this passage the power and the authority that is available to us in the kingdom. In that we can manifest the power of God here on earth by allowing or disallowing things. Meaning, 
it is to the extent that we allow or disallow that we will see manifested. Now, I think that is deep. But the truth is that Jesus has finished it all. He's made all things available to us in the kingdom. What we take and manifest out of it is left to us. I mean, it's like being a member of this church with all the groups, all the meetings that we have, the events and the programs. And one can be a member of this church and still kind of feel isolated. Not because there are not enough groups and events that we do, but because they've just not plugged themselves in. They've not taken advantage of all that is available to make friends and live life and do life together. But it's there, it's available. So it's to the extent that we actually manifest or we actually ask and receive from, from the kingdom is what we manifest. I think another good example is going for um, a holiday, an all-inclusive holiday. It's got everything there. You can get into the, whatever, the, to the pool, all kind of food. And with all of that, you can decide not to take some of it, use part of, part of it. Too. It's not as if it's not available, but it's there for you to use if you, if you actually decide to use them. And I believe that's what Christ is saying here. That to the extent at which we allow or disallow is in our hands. That's why he said, whatever we bind on earth, we bound in heaven. Whatever we lose on earth, we'll be losing in heaven. It's all available if we take hold of it in faith. So reading verse 18 again from the, from the passage we just read, it says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth. Emphasis on that you. Now, let's try and define this you from what we have read so far. This you is he or she who is like a child in his relationship with God, humble, innocent, and unwavering trust in God. Lives their life by the Spirit of God, therefore not causing anyone to stumble on their account, but instead will relentlessly chase after every lost sheep. They love their neighbors as themselves, would not let them continue in sin because they wouldn't want them to miss it. So whatsoever this person, that's what the Bible, if you follow that through, that you is talking about such, such a person. So whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you lose on earth will be lose in heaven. And he said, when two or three of you now gather, I'm there in your midst. It's interesting that he never said, when one of you gather, because it's never about personal glory, like I said, not the way the world sees things, about just me glorifying myself, having no, it's about us coming together under his umbrella, worshiping him and giving glory to him and to his body, the, the church. So therefore, when we do that, when we come together and we manifest, we can intervene for our friends and family, like Elisha did for the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4.37. Or we can even pray for nations, like Abraham did for Sodom and Gomorrah. Or we can actually pray for the churches, like Paul did, relentlessly praying for the churches. All of those things we can do under the power of Christ when we come together. So we bind things and we lose things on earth by his grace and his power. So reading on from our verse again, verse 21 to 26, it says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, 
Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all they had be sold to repay the debt. At this time, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled his debt, and let him go. Here, here Jesus is showing us the heart of the Father in relation to forgiveness. Clearly stating that in this kingdom we live and breathe forgiveness. Because we are all forgivers who have been forgiven much. Since we have understand and have experienced what it means to be forgiven, forgiving others should be our very nature. And also, no matter how far gone anyone might feel or be far from God, just like the massive debt that was cancelled in this parable, God's, the Father's arms are always wide open ready to, to receive us back as long as we recognize our mis- mistakes, genuinely repent and run to him asking for forgiveness. Psalm 51, 16 to 17 puts it this way. So you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart you, God, will not despise. The king of our kingdom is a merciful God. He's a merciful king. And he's willing and he's ready to forgive when we come to him in genuine repentance. And he expects us to do the same by his grace when others offend us. I know sometimes it's difficult to forgive, particularly when it hurts so bad. But God is encouraging us to draw strength from how much we have been forgiven and release ourselves from that burden of unforgiveness. Last part of of our passage, 28 verse 28 to 35. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into the prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sisters from your heart. So this passage, once again, emphasizes the importance of forgiveness within the kingdom. We are all recipients of God's boundless mercy. And if we refuse to give... The same 
we would only be hurting ourselves and setting ourselves up to meet with the wrath of the Father. In conclusion, Jesus teaches us in this whole passage to cultivate humility, to protect the vulnerable, seek the lost, and prioritize reconciliation and forgiveness in our relationships within the kingdom. And as we strive not to walk in our conventional understanding of power, value, and forgiveness, but instead embrace humility, relentless seeking the lost, and extending boundless forgiveness, let us do so with the remembrance that in this upside-down kingdom, the last are first, the humble are exalted, and mercy triumphs. And I pray this morning that as we continue our journey, our Christian journey, may we embody these principles, living in the reality of an upside-down kingdom that reflects the heart of the Heavenly Father.